This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, so my name is uh, Cynthia Kier, and I'm, there I am, in spades, okay, uh, guiding teacher for a uh, sangha called Great Spirit Sangha. And we are based in San Francisco and practice uh, in various places, but mostly uh, my home temple. And we're down here for a uh, concluding practice period, Sashin. And uh, I just want to uh, express again my deep gratitude and appreciation to Jakoji and to all the wonderful residents and also to the Jakoji Sangha. We love being here. <laughs> we really do. I'd also like to thank you so much for including us in your, in your practice. Absolutely. A, a, a total pleasure. A total pleasure. Um, and um, I think that. Uh, uh, Hazel, I think we've been coming here to Jokoji since about 2011. And for the last four or five years, we've come twice a year to kind of conclude our, our practice periods. And it's just wonderful. Um, so this, um, let me just get a quick uh, uh, read on the group, if I could. How many people are fairly new to Buddhism, like let's say three years and under? Yeah. <laughs> OK, good. Um, well, I, you know, I started at San, Franci San Francisco Zen Center, and of course the name of the temple there is Beginner's Mind, and we highly uh, value and appreciate people who are just starting and have that fresh uh, green mind. So, um, so the, uh, what we've been studying and what I want to talk about uh, for our practice period is actually not a um, Zen uh, text, but is rather a... Um, even though it started in India, uh, it really is uh, deeply treasured by Tibetan Buddhism. And it's called the Way of the Bodhisattva. Have people uh, heard of this um, text? Some? Yes? Okay. No? But that's okay. You'll learn now. Um, and um, it is, um, it's actually a wonderful uh, text and a wonderful study. So we've actually been reading, most of us, the uh, translation by the Padma Kara Translation Group. And then uh, we've been um, also reading Pema Chodron's commentary on it, which is called No Time to Lose, which is a fantastic uh, commentary. It's so clear. Somebody's shaking their head. Very accessible and really help, I think, uh, keep this text, which is already fantastic, kind of make it even more applicable uh, to our lives. So what this text is all about is how to live the way of a bodhisattva. So um, the bodhisattva model, which is uh, prominent in uh, central uh, to our Mahayana tradition of which Soto Zen is in the Mahayana lineage of Buddhism, is a, a model that is um, different from uh, like um, Vipassana or a lot of the other types of uh, Asian Buddhist um, lineages that southern India around the, the uh, tip of Sri Lanka, uh, Thailand, places like that. And um, they're kind of two different models. The, the um, uh, Mahayana tradition is the Bodhisattva, which is a person who commits herself or himself 
to fulfilling this way, to embodying and understanding what it is to live this life as a, uh, as a committed, dedicated Buddhist practitioner. And when he or she reaches enlightenment, decides not to spin off the wheel of suffering and to go on to find nirvana, but rather to stay back, to stay here in the land of samsara. And we stay here until all beings are enlightened and we cross over to the shore of nirvana together. And um, nothing, um, no judgment against the other model, which is called Arhat, but that's more of an individualized journey of trying to find enlightenment. And then you don't wait for other people. You just politely, when you're finished being enlightened, spin off the wheel and, and move on to whatever is, is next. So the, the, the Bodhisattva model um, is, um, even though you know, it, it's not per se a text like the Heart Sutra or the Diamond Sutra, which uh, for those of us in Zen are really key texts that speak to the notions of emptiness and shunyata. Um, it nonetheless is a very, very worthwhile uh, study. I don't know if here you consistently practice or, or chant the, the Bodhisattva vows. I know in many other Zen practice centers they do. And um, the, those vows are, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddhist way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Or some version of that. So, um, so we kind of toggled back and forth between these uh, two books, and um, uh, the the premise of um, Pema, what Pema draws out in the commentary that's that is central to Shanti Deva, the author of the Way of the Bodhisattva, who lived about 850 in India, common era or something like that. Um, is that in order to become a bodhisattva, to live this life, which is really quite challenging, given that we are a human and that the world is quite chaotic and impermanent and full of uh, uh, suffering and challenges, one of the key things that we really need in order to fuel our efforts is what we call bodhicitta. Bodhi and citta, bodhi being awakened, citta being heart-mind or wisdom mind. So somebody who, we all have bodhicitta, and cultivating it, we're trying to cultivate this mind that is awakened, that wants to be more awakened, that wants to act out of a place of wisdom and skillfulness. Um, and there's nothing new, as Shanti Deva said to the group of people when he presented this text originally. Um, He's not talking about anything new in this commentary. He's talking about basic Dharma stuff. He's talking about the precepts, about taking refuge, uh, about um, the uh, paramitas, uh, which are we call the, the, the perfections, talking about the basic teachings of the Dharma of impermanence and suffering and uh, no self or interbeing. But the way that he teaches a teaches it and presents it was extremely radical and very refreshing to people in 850 or so India. And it has retained an amazing amount of freshness and applicability all the way up to this, this point in time. Um, one of the, the key 
elements of the focus of the text is that in order to transform our suffering and to live this life and embody this life of being a bodhisattva, where we learn how to transform our own suffering, find peace and ease, and then naturally want to do it for other people. One of the key things that we stub our toe on time and time again is the experience of anger. Um, the, the three kleshas, or the three poisons, this wind has been kind of wonderful, even though I know it has a little bit of danger for the fires. kind of feels like the Buddha Dharma is all stirred up. Um, the three kleshas are um, greed, hate, and delusion. And of those three kleshas, or poisons, the one that Shantideva is pointing to as being most injurious is the one that is about hatred. Because it has more power to do more destruction internally and externally. So a lot of the, the text focuses on the fact that great harm can come from anger. In the precepts that many um, Soto Zen uh, uh, lineages partake of, um, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts uh, devised by our founder Dogen Zenji, medieval Japan, um, at the very center of them are what we call the three pure precepts, which are, I vow to do no harm, I vow to uh, actualize good, I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. So at the very top of the list, at the very heart of this list of 16 bodhisattva precepts, is a recognition that this is what we must do if we want to live this life of a bodhisattva. We must learn how not to create harm for ourselves and for our others. And again, the most um, uh, challenging aspect of not creating harm is to figure out how we deal with our, with our anger. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I mentioned that this is very much taken to, to heart and, and really revered in Tibetan Buddhist lineage. The Dalai Lama actually has said that this is his uh, favorite teaching, and he thinks that it is the most important teaching that he has. And his daily prayer is actually a prayer that we have been chanting during our practice period called the Bodhisattva Prayer for Humanity, that if you want to Google is actually very short but quite lovely, a lovely way to start your day or a lovely thing to put on your refrigerator to remind you of, of what it is that your vow and your intention uh, is. But we do acknowledge, all people acknowledge, that, that it is extremely difficult to deal with this particular poison. Oh, I really want to find that uh, one quote. Um, darn, where did I put it? Um, Craig, did you, did you bring that quote down? I'd, I'd asked you to bring the quote down. You, don't, you didn't get it? I don't think I, I don't remember you asking me about that. It's really, it's really important to this talk. I'm, I'm sorry, do you think it's in your room? 
No, I, it, well, it might be. I don't know. I didn't ask. I asked you to bring it down. No, that would be too disruptive. Too disruptive. Oh, wait a second. It's right here. So, so just take a moment. Close your eyes. Drop into your body. What just happened and what's happening in your body right this very moment. And I apologize for entering, putting anger and upset into your body. But I think what's so interesting about anger and why it's so important and why Shantideva and the Dalai Lama says we must figure out how to deal with this is because even a small instance like that with people that you don't even know probably created some energy in your body. What's going on? What's going on here? What's happening? These two people are crazy. This feels like anger. All of these things are true, by the way. Um, this, this, this is anger. Oh, no, I don't like this. What the heck is going on? I don't want this in my zendo. Why don't they stop this? Any number of, of reactions, right? And this is what happens to us in our real lives. Not this was, this was a fake Dharma theater. Um, and I thank, I thank my very chill Eno-san for participating. Um, that this happens to us time and time again over the course of our day and over the course of our life in very small, kind of insidious, silent ways, and then in very, very large ways that, that act out on the global level, right? I mean, national level. Look at, look at how angry our nation is. Look at how angry our nation is. One of the things, the, one of the ways that Pema Chodron puts the goal of working with this energy of anger is to learn how to stabilize with the edginess of our emotions. So you might have experienced a little edginess then. Again, this happens throughout the course of our day. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we take it. We reinforce it. Of course, there, that's proof positive that that person's a jerk. That's proof positive that I'm, I'm, I'm a jerk, whatever. And it is so important for us as people who want to be awake and to be stable and skillful to actually go slowly enough that we pay attention to all of these moments, small and big, that we address the small because that's good practice for when big uh, anger happens, and that we learn how to deal with it skillfully because this is our vow as people who live in the Bodhisattva way to do no harm. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, this notion of, of anger and hatred. The first thing is that um, uh, in this teaching, um, one point about anger that's made off the bat is that, you know, there's the type of anger that gets expressed. And we kind of say, oh, yeah, I got angry at my partner. I got angry at my boss. I got angry at my dog, whatever. Um, and that is a little bit more short-lived or we work through it or it's got a bit of a, a shelf life. More dangerous and, and more subtle many times is the type of anger where we think we're justified. 
yeah, I got angry at my boss, but my boss is such a jerk. You would too. <laughs> As opposed to looking at, I got angry, and I'm a person who wants to live in vow, and I need to attend to my anger, right? Instead, that self-justification comes in, and that's the type of, of energy that makes that anger live for a very, very long time. So that's one thing to pay attention to. Another thing to pay attention to, and this is a distinction that uh, Shantideva makes and that the Dalai Lama continually um, uh, points out as being really um, significant. And, and he says, and I think this is very wise, and I, I gather he's a pretty wise guy, so, um, that there's a difference between anger and hatred. Anger can be actually um, positive. People could get angry at political situations, things in, in our lives that don't work, and be motivated to do something beneficial and good. I myself went to a women's march a couple of years ago in DC, based out of my hopefully positive uh, anger. Um, but he says that hatred is completely different. Hatred is a different story altogether, because at the center of hatred is ill will, wishing harm to somebody else, wanting somebody to actually suffer some amount of pain as a result of your anger. That's what's at, at the heart of it. And that is unacceptable and has no positive benefit whatsoever. So I think that's kind of useful and a, and a good place to start for us in terms of thinking about our anger. Is this anger? Does, it, does this good? Is, is this, does this motivate me to fight against monster homes in my neighborhood or uh, work for better schools? Um, uh, or is this just something that's directed toward a person or a group, a group of people, and I just really want them to suffer, right? And that's a really, really dangerous type of uh, anger to have. Um, so the, the antidote to uh, anger, in a very general sense, is compassion. Learning to cultivate a mind that is not harming, that is non-aggressive. I think that for many of us, certainly for me, the most important starting place for me to work with my anger in that issue was with myself. If we excavate the contents of that very quiet but persistent 24-7 nonstop conversation that's going on in our heads most of the time, a fair amount of that has a lot of self-criticism and judgment, right? So that's a very, very good place to start with, to actually see if we can turn our internal communication, the speech of our mind, toward ourselves to cultivate a sense of compassion that is non-harming and non-aggressive. And I think if we do nothing else, we've done quite a lot, right? In terms of cultivating this type of compassion, because, you know, I think that what's, what's true about life as a human is that it's challenging. 
And it's for those of us who want to move into this realm of living out a vow and out this bodhisattva vow, it can be even more challenging. And we live in a challenging time and a challenging society. Speed, acquisition, distractions, and all of these forces that are counter to our vow. I mean, I suppose many of you could work in Silicon Valley, where I'm sure that the um, uh, you walk in the door and there's not a great respect for a bodhisattva vow, but perhaps a little more pressure on your productivity or trying to beat the heck out of somebody else and another get to market faster or figure out a uh, larger profit margin or something like that, right? So we live in these uh, in these in a, in a society where there are many forces that we have to really uh, kind of put our shoulder into the wheel of them to try and find some stability and make some space for our our deepest truest self to come to come forward. Shanti Deva believes that it is through the practice of patience, which is one of the paramitas, what something that we call the great perfections that we can actually dig in and start to transform our anger. Uh, I'm supposed to stop at 12.05, is that right? Uh, yes. yes, okay. So there's, there is um, a lot of very specific, um, what, one of the things that I love about the, this um, text is that it's highly practical. Um, even if you don't get the commentary, but again, uh, Pema does a, a terrific job uh, kind of uh, applying it to 2019. So I won't have a chance to go through, to, through all of these things, but one of the things I already pointed out, which is when you have an experience of anger or hatred, to actually drop into your body, to pay attention to what's going on there, to figure out how it lives in your body, right? What happens? The challenge from, from uh, Shantideva and Dalai Lama's perspective with anger and hatred are that they're types of emotions, unlike other emotions and, and uh, difficulties, that tend to compound or escalate very quickly if left unchecked. So one of the first places that we can check in is our body. And I think if we get into our bodies and we realize what anger really feels like, all of the, the, the whole continuum of anger from mild irritation to being red hot, thumping mad, right? We'll recognize that it does not feel good. It feels like suffering. It feels like pain. It feels like a poison. And when we really wake up to that, we don't want to have that in our system. I don't want to live with that, that type of agitation that keeps me awake at night. Oh, darn, why did that person say that? Oh, darn, why is this happening? Oh, my life is so unfair sort of thing. And all of the agitation. The Dalai Lama flat out says it's just physically unhealthy to, to house this type of anger. And I think that we have a lot of science to, to uh, prove that. So that's the first place to start with, just figuring out what it feels like in your body. And when we taste it deeply, it helps us to further our vow to, to transform our, our anger and our, our suffering around uh, anger. And then when we, when we drop down a little bit further and we have a certain amount of space and stability, we can start to see that anger or hatred are rarely just one thing. They're usually associated with very complicated causes and conditions. And if we start to take those apart, 
it helps to add space to this feeling of, I'm so angry, right? A monolithic, solid feeling. And we can maybe understand, oh, wait a second. I, I remember that I didn't, I didn't get an email back to that person in a timely fashion. And maybe that's why I'm getting an email from this person. We can kind of see what are all the causes and conditions that go into a situation that might have caused uh, uh, anger. And then there are some very, very specific practices that um, uh, are detailed that help us to start to tune into anger as it arises on multiple different levels within our body. First being kind of pre-verbal. What's, what's that going on? I know a lot of people for whom the, um, they don't really know that they're angry except that their body tells them something, like a really painful back or something like that. They just have been so shut down to anger that, that they finally learned out that there are physical clues that say, oh, well, I guess it's because I'm, I'm angry. So to, to tune deeply into your experience of what anger is, to try and track it from that first seed what is it that has triggered this feeling of agitation? And to try and, uh, along the con con continuum of possible expression, there are multiple opportunities, endless opportunities, to stop it. To try and um, bring down to a smaller and a lower point uh, of, of embodiment um, skillful means and skillful action so that you know, I might catch uh, my anger at, a, at that thought level, or I might catch it where it's getting really hot around my hot and my, my heart, and my shoulders are up to my ears and my back is really tense, or a, I can feel the scowl on my face, or I can feel a, a very old childhood feeling, or I might not even catch it until some words are out of my mouth. But at any of those points, it doesn't matter where we've gone, it is never too late to stop it and to interject something different. And this is where practice comes in because that's what practice is, is to do something different, something beneficial and skillful in order to change the energy of the experience and to redirect it. Um, there are many, many things and I'm, I'm out of town, but um, uh, one thing that, that Pema in particular talks about that I think is really important is to try and locate in all of us that soft spot around anger. That's usually the place that um, can f first be covered up very quickly with the emotion or with the idea, I'm right, darn it, they're wrong. Um, but if there's a way that we can, can stay with this uh, inquiry of anger and our experience of it, to find that soft spot, that is the source of our bodhicitta. And if we can cultivate um, more stability with that and kind of widen that channel that might just feel like a little, you know, uh, pinprick into something that can be, has no, no limit to the size of what it could ultimately be, then we're going to be able to transform our experience of anger and find that we have mitigated the suffering that we experience around um, anger, but more importantly, or as importantly, we've mitigated the suffering that others feel around um, anger. I called my teacher one time. I was really mad. 
And I said, oh, blah, 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 you did this and that. And she said to me, oh, I'm sure you're right, and I am very sorry. De-armed me entirely. I have never had that experience before, and I've not had it since. But it was life-changing to be met with that type of a response by somebody who, uh, who I trusted very deeply and who, uh, whose practice as a bodhisattva I knew to be, to be real. That's the sort of thing that we can do for each other and for other people. This is not an easy practice. In fact, I want to leave you with a, a, a quote. Um, I like this quote very much. Generally speaking, if a human being doesn't show anger, then I might think there's something wrong. He's not right in his head. That's the Dalai Lama. <laughs> so if the Dalai Lama recognizes how difficult it is for, how, how frequent it is for us to have this anger, and how difficult it is, we can certainly, as we take on this practice of trying to de-escalate, tame, transform our own anger for ourselves and others, we can add some compassion and some patience for ourselves for doing this good bodhisattva work. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. I appreciate it. And, and my apologies. I know you were probably expecting another program. But at least we gave you something to practice with, right? Irritation, anger, whatever. <laughs> Have a great day. <laughs>